Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. In this episode, I continue reading from my memoir, Last Rites, Leaving Churchland. I've completed my first term at Trinity College, preparing for ordination to the priesthood in the Anglican Church. My head is filled with promising new ideas, but my soul demands its pound of flesh. Once again, I was learning that you can't have light without the darkness. Curiously, both seemed to come from the same divine source. So down we go, to the depths, for chapter 5, the second of three parts. Everything that happened next was the fault of one man. And sometimes when we touch The honesty is too much And I have to close my eyes and hide I want to hold you till I die Till we both break down and cry I want to hold you till the fear in me subsides. The year I finished high school, I had taken a job on the maintenance crew at a church camp. Camp Kujiching was run by the Anglican Diocese of Toronto. Unlike Young Life, with its evangelistic aims, Kujiching was less about propagating the faith than simply providing fresh air and good times for church kids. I had become a full-fledged, teetotaling, born-again Christian by then, so I didn't drink or smoke pot with the other staff, maybe just a beer now and then, to be sociable. But I enjoyed the rowdy company in the staff lodge, including the wild pranks and the party nights that often ended with dubious pairings that one had to be careful not to walk in on. There was one young staff member, a counselor in training, with his full lips, big eyes, and kinky hair, who had all the moves, all the charisma, and all the admirers that a teen could ever wish for. He would walk about the site with prepubescent female campers literally hanging off him. In the evenings, he would sometimes be whisked away with his guitar to entertain local cottagers with his doe-eyed singer-songwriter routine. It was Dan Hill. I never got to know Dan personally. He was program staff, and we, as toilet cleaners and post-hole diggers, were not. We had our own tacit non-fraternization principles, just as the counselors had theirs, but I regarded him from afar with awe and with envy. How could he do so easily what the rest of us could only dream of doing, and be what we could only dream of being? 
I managed to forget all about Dan Hill until the summer of my hospital chaplaincy. I spent the weeks after the program ended, before classes at Trinity started up again for the fall, fixing up our slum apartment on Spadina Avenue while listening to FM radio. My mother had cried the first time she and my dad visited Joan and me there to see us living in such squalor, but I had high hopes for the place. I painted the walls. I added louvered shutters to the front room windows, which otherwise opened onto people waiting at the bus stop. I built shelves for the bedroom and installed pine wainscoting in the bathroom, all this to improve its prospects and ours as well, by distracting us from the skitter of cockroaches on the kitchen counter after the lights went out. One dog day afternoon late that summer, as I stood in the living room, paintbrush in hand, Chum FM, the local rock station, launched into an hour-long interview with an up-and-coming Toronto singer and songwriter who had a new album out. They announced they would play the album in its entirety, interspersed with interviews with the artist himself, Dan Hill. The paintbrush never left my hand. I barely moved as Dan provided commentary for each track, what it meant, who it was about, and how he wrote it, including for his hit single, Sometimes When We Touch. I stood, frozen, in the middle of the room, awash in the resentful feelings I had had for Dan at camp, but now, writ large, he had become famous. I returned to school when September came, I even helped welcome the new first-year divines at a meet-and-greet with a reworking of the Eagles' song, Peaceful, Easy Feeling, providing for their amusement a cheesy pastiche of student life at Trinity. I performed for them another song called The Bionic Bozos about my summer as a student chaplain. It included the hapless lines, Walking down the ward you would not know us, excepting for the halos round our heads, searching for some action for verbatims, a patient who looked troubled, sad, or dead. They laughed. But I didn't find it very funny myself, not while I knew Dan Hill was getting his songs played on the radio, serious songs that weren't going for cheap laughs. Once classes started, I found it hard to muster any enthusiasm for the actual task of learning. I was distracted and vaguely depressed, At first, I had no reason why. But then came the fateful evening when I learned that David Bradstreet, a Toronto singer and songwriter, was playing at the Riverboat Cafe in Yorkville. It was only a half dozen blocks from where we lived. I had heard him once at the Bear Pit up at York when I was a student there. While he wasn't a Christian songwriter, he was a pro. And I liked his voice, I liked his songs, and mainly... I just liked what he got to do. Joan and I had already gone to bed, but I couldn't sleep. I thought of David Bradstreet playing on that little stage in that small room, so close, so accessible. In one of those inexplicable choices we make in a flash of inspiration, I suddenly threw off the covers and said I had to go out. Joan worked the next day, so she wasn't interested in joining me, but that was okay, This was something I had to do alone. Off I went to catch his last set, if I could still get a seat. They squeezed me in at a table with a young man, his date, and, curiously, 
his date's mother. Before the set began, the young man excused himself for a moment and never returned. Mother and daughter exchanged cryptic glances. But I wasn't there for them and for whatever little drama was unfolding at my table. I wasn't there as a chaplain or a student minister, but as a musician. David Bradstreet was accompanied by a bass player who was also familiar to me, Carl Kesey, who I had seen play with the folk trio Lazarus. I had two of their albums, and I had taught myself to fingerpick by playing their songs over and over. David and Carl were the real deal, and I hung off every nuance of their performance. After the set, I went to the back of the club and up the stairs to knock on the dressing room door. They welcomed me in. I announced that I was a songwriter too. In fact, I said, I was leaving school to pursue music full-time. Actually, that was news to me. Until the words came out of my mouth, I had no idea that's what I was doing. David lent me his guitar and his finger picks, which I bent out of shape to fit my own fingers, and I played for them, You Can't Look Beyond the Sun. Nice, they said. They smiled warmly, and they wished me well. I returned home, but I'm not sure I slept the rest of the night. In the morning, sleep-deprived and shaky, I went to see Dean Buckner to inform him that I was leaving Trinity College and the Divinity Program. I wasn't taking a year off, I said. I was quitting. I needed to pursue a career in music to see if I could make it. Something caught in my throat as the words found their way out, and the dean heard it. He seemed concerned and genuinely saddened by the news. He asked if I wanted some time to think about it, but he let me go with his good wishes when I said I didn't. I walked out of his office a free man, freer than I had ever been before, and terrified. The first hurdle on my new path was convincing Joan that leaving school for a career in music was a good idea. She liked my music, and she liked me playing it as a hobby. With her new job as a junior executive at the Bay, where she and a few colleagues were being fast-tracked for managerial roles, her mind was on practical things like budgets and sales projections and strategic five-year plans none of which were in evidence in my own spontaneous little venture. I got myself a job at a local liquor store doing part-time work. At least I could say I was bringing home, if not the bacon, actually, then at least some pork rinds every now and then, which were abundant in the local shops of nearby Kensington Market. During the days, I honed my craft, writing new material and rehearsing it for performance. I discovered a new citywide program that was just then starting up called the Toronto Skills Exchange. Skilled people were offering classes in their various crafts in exchange for money. One of these people was Matt McCauley. He was a personal friend of and music collaborator with Dan Hill. Was fate taunting me or was it luring me? I had to find out, so I signed up. A dozen of us met at Matt's house in the annex for a series of evening sessions. 
He was joined by his fellow presenter, music producer Tony Kozniak, who had just co-written the successful new Toronto Blue Jays theme song, OK Blue Jays. They had set up folding chairs in rows in the living room. They wrote key words on a flip chart and told stories and built a framework for writing and recording original music. Then they invited someone to offer an original song we could record together downstairs in their basement studio. My hand shot up. The next week, I arrived for the recording session with my guitar and a handwritten chart with the words and chords to a new song, Find My Way Back Home. They recorded me singing and playing it, live from the floor, as they say. They had me double the guitar part to thicken it. They added a vocal harmony performed by Louise Lambert, one of our class members, who would go on to forge an international music career of her own. They came up with a bass guitar line, and then Matt ran a cable back upstairs to the living room so he could add a part on his baby grand piano. When the whole thing came together, they played it back through the studio monitors. There was my voice, singing my words, accompanied by my guitar, augmented by the musical lines of several seasoned musicians. The effect was so intoxicating that my knees slowly gave out and I slid down the wall to listen from a squat position on the floor. This is what I had always heard in my head when I wrote a song. The thing fully developed and produced, like a song you could hear on the radio, like a song by Dan Hill. In the coming months, I shelled out $600 for 12 hours in a real recording studio where I could make a demo tape. I picked up live performances wherever I could get them, Mainly, this meant guest sets and open mics at the few remaining folk clubs in and around town. But those were dying venues in 1977. It was the year of Saturday Night Fever, and disco began to suck up all the airplay. When I shopped my demo tape around to the media and to record companies, disco had got there first. The CBC sent my tape back to me, noting an uncanny and perhaps unflattering similarity between my voice and John Denver's. Rob Bennett, a talent rep at True North Records, Bruce Coburn's management company, but also Dan Hills, said he liked the songs I sent him, but he couldn't offer me any further tangible encouragement at that time. Only one record company would see me, and that was Warner Electra Atlantic Records, WEA, part of Warner's communications empire. They ran a Toronto office out of an industrial park in Scarborough. The company boasted some of the day's biggest talents, from Ray Charles to Led Zeppelin to Crosby, Stills and Nash. They did not, however, produce Dan Hill's records. Perhaps that should have served as an omen. Gary Muth, WEA's artist and repertoire manager, agreed to give me five minutes one morning. The receptionist told me to take a seat. She smiled to herself as I sat before her, cradling the box containing my demo tape. I'm sure she'd seen dozens, if not hundreds, just like me. From somewhere down the hall, a deafening thump, thump, thump was repositioning the walls of the building. It was a disco version of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Suddenly, the music stopped. The receptionist's phone lit up. Mr. Muth would see me now. He didn't look at me as he invited me to take a seat. He asked for my tape. 
He turned his back to me and threaded it onto his reel-to-reel tape recorder. He advanced it. Five seconds of the first song. Click. Whirr. Click. Five seconds of the second song. Click. Whirr. Click. Five seconds of the third song. Like that. Through to the fifth. He rewound the tape, placed it back in the box, turned, and put the box at the edge of his desk between him and me. Then he looked at me for the first time. This is what we in the business would call sucky, he said. It may be good. There may be some interesting stuff here. Some people may like it. But if it doesn't grab me in the first five seconds, if it doesn't have a strong beat, if it's not electric, it's not going to get airplay. And airplay is all I care about. But what about Dan Hill, I tried to counter. He's not electric. Yeah, and he won't happen again, he said. Go work on your songs. Come back and see me when you've got something with a beat, something electric. I muttered a thank you, took my tape from his desk, and walked back down the hall, past the smiling receptionist, out into the sunshine. I had to raise my hand to my eyes to shield them from its harsh glare. It felt like the door had opened and then closed again on the music business. There would be only one more ride on Dan Hill's coattails. Matt McCauley agreed to meet me for lunch at a downtown diner. I sought his advice about my fledgling music career. He was supportive, but noncommittal. He offered only one hint of wisdom as he reached over to pick up the tab. A little chutzpah wouldn't hurt either, he said. I was running out of chutzpah for the music dream. Maybe that's what Matt saw. The music business was turning away from musicians like me, guitar strumming, songwriting troubadours. The ones I met who were holding on to the dream had to content themselves by playing weekend gigs at holiday inns, singing cover versions of pop songs over the din of chainsaw voices and clanging tableware while paying the rent with a day job on the dock of a dusty warehouse. Six months after I'd left it, school began to look pretty good to me again. Maybe I could return to Trinity in the fall, pursuing my music as a hobby. Maybe I could figure out ways to incorporate it into my ministry. Maybe this would even help bridge the silent distance that had opened up between Joan and me since I'd gone off on my troubadour's quest. More and more, we were passing in the night with little to say to each other about how we'd spent our days. I've been reading from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland. Thanks so much for listening. Perhaps my story has clicked replay on yours, especially from the early days of your adulthood and of your own spiritual formation. If so, I invite you to share that story on our Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or write me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. In the next episode, I continue reading from Chapter 5. I had listened to the inner voices directing me to take my music seriously. I had followed the wild impulse to give it a go professionally. But now, I was going back to school. Could there be any other impediments to graduation and to ordination? My head was clear. My soul was satisfied. Only my heart 
was failing to report in. Join me next time as the journey continues. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too-